Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. An 11-judge panel of the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is scheduled to hear arguments today in a lawsuit over California's ban on large-capacity magazines for guns. While a ruling in the case may not come for several months, it could play a role in the future of other gun laws in the state. That includes California's decades-old ban on assault weapons. Yesterday, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit put a hold on a San Diego-area judge's decision to overturn that ban. Earlier this month, Judge Roger Benitez compared an AR-15 semi-automatic weapon to a Swiss Army knife in his ruling. The legal fight in that case may eventually head all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Turning to the pandemic, COVID-19 vaccination rates for police and fire personnel in Los Angeles County are significantly lower than the state's average for other adults, and that's raising concerns about public safety. The LA Times reports that while 72% of adults in California and 64% of adults in LA have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine, Just over half of the city's firefighters and police officers are partially vaccinated. Here's LAPD Chief Michael Moore speaking at a recent police commission meeting. Uh, We continue to work with those that have uh, not uh, taken the second dose or have not taken uh, either of the doses to encourage them to uh, participate in the vaccination process. Some medical experts and community activists have expressed concerns about the low vaccination rates for these first responders, particularly because of their everyday interactions with more vulnerable residents in the community. Governor Gavin Newsom was asked about these lower vaccination rates at a recent news conference and said he does not anticipate a vaccination mandate for police, fire and correctional workers at this time. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care. On the web at chcf.org voices. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. 
and Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Now to the latest investigation from the California Reporting Project, a collaboration led by public radio stations that's been looking into police misconduct around the state for the last two years. Their most recent story looks at police misconduct in Bakersfield, finding that over a four-year period, police officers there broke 45 bones in 31 people. And yet the department found that in no case did the officers involved in those encounters violate policy. KQED data journalist Lisa Pickoff-White joins me now for more. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. What does it mean that police officers broke 45 bones in 31 people? How bad were these injuries? Well, we really saw a range, but we saw injuries that were face fractures, uh, where an officer had elbowed someone in the face until they became unconscious. We saw people who had their wrists broken. We also saw people who suffered serious injuries who say that they now really struggle to walk even. We also talked to one man uh, who was beaten outside his home after a case of mistaken identity who, um, after decades of hard labor, had dreamed of painting in his retirement. And he says that now he struggles to lift a paintbrush sometimes. So, Lisa, were any of the officers reprimanded or in any way held accountable? Well, what we found is that the Bakersfield Police Department investigates each use of force. A sergeant is supposed to interview people who are there, look at what happened, and write a report. On top of that, we found in three of these cases that there were citizen complaints. And in those cases, additionally, the Internal Affairs Department looked at it. What all these sergeants and internal affairs officers found was that all of these uses of force were in policy, that essentially all the officers were following uh, what they were supposed to do in the field. We spoke to the Bakersfield Police Department and they say that they investigate every single use of force. A sergeant asks questions, they go out and they write, write a report and they investigate, was this use of force in policy? Did it follow what the department wants people to be doing? But when we looked at these reports, we found that on average, they're pretty short. They're about five sentences long. We've seen reports that were about one sentence. You know, I think hearing that, Lisa, this idea that these these behaviors followed policy might surprise some listeners. Can you talk about whether there's uh, any questions about whether there need to be changes to policy? Has that been part of the discussion? There's been a lot of discussion about Bakersfield's police department's use of force policies. And currently, the city is also in talks with California because the state DOJ is currently settling with the city over um, the Bakersfield Police Department. At this point, there's no discussion on how to really change the use of force policies at the department. However, the police do say that they observe data from these use of force incidents and try to do make tactical and strategic changes based off of that. Well, all of this comes back to a debate that's ongoing in Bakersfield about what keeps a community safe. And that discussion has been live. Just last week, the city council voted to boost annual spending on the police department to $133 million. That makes it 42% of the city's overall budget. Do people in Bakersfield agree, Lisa, about what they want? Over the last few weeks of city council meetings, we've heard a lot of people who can't even agree on what public safety means. You can hear how emotional some people got about this debate at a recent city council meeting last week. 
What you are witnessing is anger that has been multiplied over time. When people come and they speak and they give you respect and they speak graciously and they speak perfect King's English, you disregard them. When people come up here and they cuss and they yell and they have righteous anger, which is their right as human beings whose civil liberties are infringed upon, you still don't listen. We support the addition of more police officers in the city of Bakersfield. That was a Measure N campaign promise to the voters and to the community, the business community, who supported Measure End, and that they expect the city to follow through on that promise. That was Fahima saluted Din Floyd and Kaylin Peterson at the city council meeting last week. After that, protesters were able to come in and have a short period where they could speak on the budget or the police force, although they were limited in their time. Because of that, People's Budget Baco and other groups said that they're going to be back at future city council meetings to have their say. And we will be keeping an eye on that. Thank you so much, Lisa Pickoff-White, data journalist with KQED. Thank you. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. California is planning to use federal money to cover all the unpaid rent of millions of low-income renters who struggled during the pandemic. Governor Gavin Newsom has voiced his support for that plan as the state legislature debates whether to extend California's moratorium on evictions beyond June. As KQED's Molly Solomon reports, some renters, including those who've applied for relief, are already being told they have to leave. Like a lot of renters affected by the pandemic, Alex Balon has had a hard time paying his landlord every month. His wife had to stop working to take care of their two kids. Then he got into a serious workplace accident. They've been surviving on his disability checks. But it's a fraction of what they made before the pandemic. Balon, who lives in Milpitas, spoke to KQED through a translator with Catholic Charities of Santa Clara County. He's late two months on his rent. Basically, uh, since the accident and not having his wife working, they're really in their tight ropes. Balon owes over $4,000 and said his landlord has already threatened them with an eviction if they don't pay everything they owe by the first of the month. He's applied to the state's rent relief program, which has been slow to distribute $2.6 billion in aid. Catholic Charities of Santa Clara County has helped Balon and nearly 90 others apply for rent relief. Greg Kepferly, the nonprofit CEO, says they're all still waiting to hear from the state. 
and 25 of them have now received an eviction notice. Kepferly says it would be premature to lift protections now. The money is there. The need is there. Just get it in the hands of the people who need it. Landlords are growing antsy, too, with bills of their own to pay. Lawmakers have just days left to strike a deal on whether to extend the moratorium past June. Governor Newsom says he supports an extension and wants the state to pay landlords 100 percent of the money they're owed. For the California Report, I'm Molly Solomon. With California's reopening, much of the focus has been on businesses that are finally able to open without capacity limits. But in many larger metro areas, the challenge now is to get foot traffic back to pre-pandemic levels. That's especially the case in downtown business districts, which throughout the pandemic have looked like ghost towns with so many office workers working from home. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi caught up with Emily Cameron, development director with the Downtown Sacramento Partnership about what lies ahead in California's capital city. There is no sugarcoating what the last 16 months have been for downtown Sacramento. Really, overnight in March 2020, we went from a bustling downtown central business district with 100,000 employees coming in and out every day, you know, the top destination for visitors at our historic waterfront that borders downtown, as well as nightlife and entertainment. And, you know, really overnight, everything shut down. Um, I think we learned pretty quickly how important a mixed-use neighborhood is. You know, we have been the center of employment with almost half of the city's workforce in downtown, and overnight that disappeared, but we didn't have the residents. So you saw foot traffic dry up, you saw offices empty, uh, and then obviously with the state guidance requiring businesses to, for the most part, shut down completely, we saw immediate effects. And you know, fortunately, downtown Sacramento is somewhat unique in that a lot of our ground floor retail businesses are independently and locally owned, which in some ways really meant that people had to roll up their sleeves and, and didn't have the large, you know, coffers or independent other resources to, to be able to lean on. But what they did have was the ability to be creative, the ability to be nimble, and really lean into the support local movement that really has become synonymous with the brand of Sacramento. When it comes to reopening, we think a lot about smaller businesses, but how important is it for larger businesses and especially their office workers coming back and supporting areas like downtown Sacramento? We've seen retail tenants have pivoted. They've changed or modified operations over the last year. But as we resume and try to get back to a sense of normalcy, having office tenants who are driving our economy and driving you know, sales for these businesses, it's going to be important. You know, it's, they are the folks who are creating not only an identity for the downtown, for our city, for our region, but they're also what is fueling that economic engine. So whether it be office tenants who are going out to lunch, happy hour, hosting events, that sort of thing, to, you know, even folks who are attending events at the downtown uh, Golden One Center Arena, or a new theater, or a new convention center, it's, you know, it's a mix of a lot of things, But those are crucial elements to being able to really reopen and resume our economy. That was the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi speaking with Emily Cameron with the Downtown Sacramento Partnership. The largest river restoration project in U.S. history has received a major boost. KQED's Kevin Stark reports federal regulators have approved a dam removal plan along the lower Klamath River in Northern California. 
Demolishing four giant hydroelectric dams along the Klamath will open hundreds of miles of waterway along the Oregon-California border to threaten salmon that are critical to local tribes. Dam removal is a two-step dance. The first step, transferring operating licenses from the energy company Pacific Corp to a nonprofit representing California, Oregon, and the Yurok and Karuk tribes. The Fed's latest approval secured this, ending two decades of false starts, broken deals, and fierce legal brokering. Craig Tucker, a natural resources consultant for the Karuk tribe. Well, we're elated. Dam removal can't come soon enough for folks in the Klamath. We're experiencing right now a massive fish kill. The majority of our juvenile salmon will not make it to the ocean this year. And that's a, the dams play a big role in that. The second step, actually demolishing the dams and paving the way for a hugely ambitious salmon restoration effort on California's second largest river. That could take time and lots of paperwork. Tucker says if all goes to plan, removal will begin in January 2023. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, June 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care. On the web at chcf.org voices. Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.